Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Welcome to episode 22 of Odeon Capital Conversations. On this episode, we'll be looking at money and markets, the global outlook with the latest in the war on inflation and the response of the US Federal Reserve. We'll also look at the economy and hourly wages and at housing. Dick Beauvais will share his analysis on the risks of recession and the factors that could trigger this recession. He'll also have analysis on the banks. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this break. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Matt and Dick, welcome to episode 22 of Odeon Capital Conversations. Lots to talk about from the markets to the economy to the big global picture an outlook. Now, I suppose it's not exactly a positive note to start on, but we'll take it. We saw stocks rise sharply this morning after the long weekend. Matt and Dick, that's a bear market rally or a dead cat bounce, whatever way you wish to look at it. I think that uh, we've now seen uh, all of the negative information that could be brought to bear uh, from a, a jawboning standpoint, uh, we've had the Fed, you know, pound on us now for a couple of months. We've had, uh, you know, the uh, general consensus in the marketplace swing from, gee, it looks like we could have a recession. We've had, uh, you know, the, the the first big raise in interest rates, and even though the Fed is not shrinking its balance sheet, it's not expanding it either. So, so the net effect is uh, all of that is in the market. And the market has reacted dramatically to that information. But now people are starting to explore the other side. I know in my case, um, I no longer understand why inflation should continue to rise, number one. And I no longer understand why it's going to be a long protracted situation. For example, when I said in February, uh, uh, you know, 18, 20 months ago that, um, I thought that inflation was going to take off and hit double-digit levels. There were specific reasons for that. Uh, and, and it's kind of a falling domino, and it worked like this. Number one, I saw that the uh, United States was running a federal deficit, which, which hit actually $4.2 trillion. Number two, I saw that the normal purchases of that incremental debt, you know, the Social Security fund, government pension funds, in, uh, you know, market people in the marketplace, uh, foreigners—they weren't buying it, they weren't touching it. So that the Federal Reserve had to step in and start buying this debt. And when the Federal Reserve stepped in and started buying the debt, what we saw was this massive increase in the money supply. It went up at twenty-six percent year over year. Uh, you know, in the year ending in two twenty. So, so the net effect is, and, and, and of course, the, this was 10 times faster than the growth in the economy. So to me, it was evident, you know, even though there hadn't been any supply chain issues at that point, there hadn't been any, you know, issues related to uh, a war in Ukraine, it was evident to me that inflation would take off. All right, when I look at the situation today, none of those events are in place, none of them. The first thing is that the Fed deficit, this uh, not the Fed, the federal deficit this year is now estimated to be, you know, less than a trillion dollars. 
4.2 trillion down to 0.8 trillion, well, less than a trillion. Next year, it's expected to be in the same range, uh, 0.9 trillion. There is no major spending program in front of Congress at the present time, which would take that off kilter, okay? Second thing, uh, the issue of are the other people buying this debt? Yeah, they're coming in in, in sizable amounts. The Social Security Fund, which you know was not buying because it didn't have the money, all of a sudden it has a lot of money again, and it's been buying the debt. The, the foreigners, they have picked up their buying of the debt. I mean, the dollar is soaring. So that, that's picked up the buying of the debt. So the Federal Reserve which would buy, which was buying 54 to 55% of the net incremental debt and printing money to do so isn't doing that anymore. It's only buying roughly 20%. And the growth in money supply, which as I said, was 26% year over year at the end of uh, 2020 is now down to 8%. And it looks like once the Fed actually starts shrinking the balance sheet that it could go negative. So all of the things which led me to believe that there was going to be a huge increase in inflation are no longer in place. So that's my first problem. My second problem is the tangible information which we're now looking at is all showing price declines. If we take a look at you know commodity prices, commodity prices are down virtually across the board. Now they're down because as I said, the foreigners are buying the debt again, which means that the dollar is strong and the dollar, you know, is basically the price for all commodities. And therefore, everybody else is seeing an inflation. We're getting deflationary pressures as a result of what's going on with the dollar, number one. Number two, housing prices are down. They're not up. You know, we can't keep looking year over year. We got to start looking month over month. And the month over month figures clearly show that they're declining. Number three, you've got this yen situation where the yen is, you know, exploding on the downside. What is that going to do to the price of Japanese cars? It's going to push them down. And according to the bankers that I'm talking to, they're already seeing some reduction in prices of automobiles in the used car market. And number four, if, you know, again, we, we've got this fabulous, you know, analyst in the retail area, Alex Arnold, and he's indicating that there are excess inventories sitting in places like Walmart and Target, and that price discounting programs have started. So where I'm sitting here is, what's the drivers that are going to knock inflation up? Because there are a number of drivers which are in place which are set to knock inflation down. So I think inflation has peaked. I, I can't tell you when it's going to get down to 2%, which is where the Fed wants it. But the fact of the matter is, because the Fed wants it at 2%, they're going to keep the screws on. So I think, I think the inflation issue is now going in the background. And if that's true, then rallies in the market make sense. You know, basically, where is the inflation coming from is the problem I'm dealing with. I don't think you talked too long. I think you did a really nice job of uh, tying a nice bow on on what's actually happening. I think the question is, when you saw inflation coming 18 months ago, did it take 18 months before the Fed kind of caught up with you? Or, you know, I mean, I recall inflation started showing up, I think, in mid-summer last year, when we started breaking 5 and 6%, and then you got the Fed going all transitory and started using language like this is just temporary don't worry about it and you were right what what do you think the lag time will be before we start seeing disinflationary pressures in the numbers and you know the the one that kind of scares me a little bit is the the owner's equivalent rent which is such a lagging indicator we've seen house prices and rents go up so much in real time and not really reflected in the number will that actually kind of be a, a drag on the headline inflation number coming down because you're going to see rents, which make up, I think, about a third of the, the overall inflation out, I don't want to use the word outperform, but basically overemphasize um, it, its place in the market, or at least its place in the index where, you know, you might see housing now, even though in real time housing maybe is flatlined, it'll start showing up as eight and 9% year on year numbers as we get into the summertime. So what, what do you think about those two things? 
Well, number one, I think you're exactly right. We got a lagging impact effect uh, with the uh, the price of housing uh, because as the price of housing went up, the uh, CPI didn't pick it up at all because interest rates remained low and 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 the equivalent re- rental cost, which is the way they calculate the price of houses, uh, the equivalent re- rental cost was not going up at all. Now as they calculate the equivalent rental costs, they're going to have to put in a 6%, uh, you know, it's a little less than that, but a 6% mortgage rate. And that's going to drive the equivalent rental costs up, which is going to keep, you know, the CPI up higher than the what, what is actually occurring in the marketplace. So when housing prices were going up, they didn't pick it up. Now that high housing prices are going down, and, you know, we have the NAR figures, we have the figures from the Department of Commerce, you know, now that those prices are going to go be going down, the CPI is not going to pick it up either. So you're exactly right. That's going to be a problem with, you know, determining when inflation has, has turned here. But I think that, you know, it's not going to take much more than one or two quarters at the most to see the inflation numbers start to ease up meaningfully and to have the Fed start to think about, do we really need to continue with this push to three and a quarter percent or four percent on the Fed funds? So let, let to, to give it a specific date, you know, let's say, you know, December 31st. By December 31st, it should be clear what's happening. But you know, we have all of this information, which is coming in right now, showing price declines in a variety of areas. I mean, if people start going to Walmart and to Target and getting, you know, discounts on prices, if people who are renting homes start thinking about, well, maybe, you know, uh, I, I'll give a free month's rent, you know, to, to get this thing going again, you know, that'll happen before the CPI numbers pick it up. I don't know, drive you know, anecdotally, and you can't get away from looking at what's happening in your own neighborhood. Um, fact is, there are, there are for sale signs on houses, on people's house, uh, lots now. There, there were none a couple of uh, months ago. There were none a year ago. They're starting to show up again because these hedge funds are starting to rethink whether they should be jumping in and buying these houses the minute they're listed just to, to build their, their uh, if you will, inventory of, of product to, to, to rent. So um, I don't know. Again, I think you're exactly right, Matt, that basically there's a lag effect on calculating the the rent equivalent cost of owning a home, which will keep the CPI higher. But I don't see the drivers in the economy, which are going to drive, you know, the, the rent up. Oh, I'm sorry, to, to drive inflation up. I agree. And I guess my other curiosity that I've been waiting for is for so long, the Fed has said June 1st, we're going to start selling June 1st. And, you know, the, the opposite of QE, the um, quantitative tightening. and so far, it seems like it's not it's not observed anywhere in the news media. As far as I can tell, you're the only person that's talking about it, but they haven't really shrunk their balance sheet. Do you think it's a sign of cold feet or or they realize that it's just not the right time or they're just keeping this in their in their toolkit to use later? Or I mean, but like at some point, someone's going to call them out and say, you said June 1st and you haven't done anything yet. Yeah, well, you know, I think... Um you've got all these people on on uh, television now basically saying the Fed has zero credibility. So if the Fed, you know, we come to the end of June and we're in the situation we are right now, whereby they haven't done anything, then the credibility of the Fed is going to take a major shot, another major shot downward. But the fact, you know, the matter is that the Fed is not shrinking the balance sheet. It is not doing it. And they promised they would do it. Uh, in addition to which, they promised that they would double the level of reduction uh, in in the mortgage-backed securities market and in the treasury market in September. So if they they haven't started in June, I don't know what they're going to double in when we get to September. Fact of the matter is, they haven't done anything. Doubling zero actually turns out to be zero. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We're talking about almost $9 on its balance sheet, Dick, here. Yeah. I didn't answer the second part of what Matt raised, which is, what are they thinking about? You know, I think what they're beginning to realize is that the reported number is nine trillion. The real number is probably somewhere around seven and a half to eight trillion. And the reason why we don't see the real number is because they refuse to mark to market 
their holdings. If they start selling, they have to mark to market because they, they basically have sold it for nine bucks, not 10 bucks. And if they sold it for nine bucks, they got to take a buck loss and that's going to show up and it'll be evident that the Fed has no equity because the equity in the Fed, you know, I'm saying that the, that the real value of the balance sheet is a trillion to a trillion and a half below what they're stating it to be. And there's less than 50 billion in equity at the Fed. They'll wipe out their equity. That's what I was about to just press you on. Are they in fear of this negative equity being underwater? You've spoken about this on previous episodes. Yeah, I don't see how they cannot be. You know, in other words, we're not saying that we have gold or silver or cryptocurrencies behind the dollar. What we're saying we have behind the dollar is the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. In other words, I've said this 90 times. It says on the bottom of that of that dollar bill, this is a note of the Federal Reserve. That means that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is backing that currency. And if the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve is insolvent because there's no equity in it and because it is overstated its the true value of its assets, then I would think there would have to be a major impact on the value of the dollar. And that would mess up this whole theory that I'm expounding a couple of minutes ago that the dollar keeps rising. You know, it, it keeps pressure on lowering inflation. So I, I don't know how they're going to deal with this. I know, I'm sorry, I do know, that, you know, they, they're going to try and use runoff in the beginning, you know, to avoid, you know, making the sales because runoff, you're getting rid of it at par. So, you know, wh whether that's going to work or not, I don't know. But they, they're not pulling the trigger. And I think they're not pulling the trigger because that they don't they don't have a balance sheet which is fairly uh, fairly stated. Uh, the numbers are just are false. Well, Dick, you caught it and called it early on this out of control inflation early last year. Now you brought up something here about deflationary kind of trends. You know this build up in inventory and housing being maybe in a changing mode. You you talked about those for sale signs in your neighborhood. I'm not sure if that indicates that there's gonna be a, a, some problem in the housing market, but it's certainly an interesting indicator. This might sound like an outlier kind of question, but could we have deflation in our economy after this white hot inflation? Well, you know, I, I think it, it's uh, definitely a possibility. Uh, and by the way, the National Association of Realtors came out with the uh, sales of uh, existing homes today, and I haven't had a chance to get into their database, but apparently it's the worst number that we've seen in a couple of years. So my neighborhood is like the neighborhood of, of, of America at the moment. But if we, we do what I'm hoping we're going to do, which is to you know emphasize manufacturing capability and that we do it driven by robotics, which you know reduces the labor input in the uh, creation of these goods and services, yeah, that would be deflationary. You know, and if in fact, you know, the Fed goes so far that it starts shrinking the money supply at the same point in time that we're unloading inventories, at the same point in time that we're lowering the cost of manufacturing, you know, it, it could be deflationary. But I, I don't, I think we're so far away from that at the present time that it's not something that uh, I'm, I'm looking seriously at. Yeah, but we've gotten away from this notion of supply chain disruptions, which still exist and were quite severe during the height of the COVID pandemic, but now inventory buildups. Yeah, and I think that uh, the banks are seeing that because, I mean, the banks are a good way to look at the economy because they lend money everywhere. What they're seeing is that at the end of last year, there was a significant increase in loans being made to, to pay for the inventory building that was occurring. Now they're seeing, you know, the inventory building has leveled out and has stopped growing based upon the loans that they're making. Uh, and they're talking about, you know, companies actually thinking about uh, increasing their facility size or doing things to expand the, the, the ability to produce goods, all of which is extremely positive. But again, um, I, I think the signs are all over the place that inflation has peaked. I would also point out that everything you're talking about is somewhat circular and self-fulfilling, or at least part of a feedback loop, because 
weeks ago, we've talked about how Fannie and Freddie and the Fed are pulling out back of mortgages and there's not a lot of capital to create mortgages. And then you talk about um, home sales being, you know, on a, on a steep decline. A lot of that is just interest rates, but also the fact that there's not a lot of money for mortgages because people aren't making the loan, not, not people, but lenders aren't making the loans because there's not buyers for the loans. So when they're, when banks are out there making loans, they know intuitively they're going to have to probably keep these on their balance sheet for a while. And so they're hesitant to do it. And so everything you're discussing, the, the excess inventory, the lower home sales, the the lack of mortgage originations, you know, the inflation, it, it all kind of forms this kind of feedback loop that if inflation really is peaked and now we're starting to go into a more disinflationary period, the question is when when does the get turned back on and cash available to mortgage borrowers. That's obviously an issue that I really am interested in because I own Fannie and Freddie Stark. <laughs> so I would like to see something happen there. But what, what I've noticed is that um, in, in the uh, period uh, from 2020, 2021, if you take the Federal Reserve numbers showing the net increase in mortgages in the United States, which was 1.3 trillion, and you compare it to the increase in the holdings of mortgages of the Fed, which was 1.3 trillion, you know, if if the two numbers produced by the government are correct, roughly 100% of the increase in the net increase in mortgages were paid for by the Federal Reserve. In the first quarter, because the numbers came out last week for the first time, in the first quarter of 2022, what we're seeing is the Fed did not buy 100% of the net increase in mortgages, they bought something on the order of 60% of it. So 40% was purchased from other sources. Uh, when you look for what those other sources were, it was Fannie and Freddie. Now, so, so you have to ask yourself, can Fannie and Freddie step in and increase their balance sheets when they're owned by the United States government and therefore they have no access to funding in the private sector. In other words, they cannot add to their capital by, by making stock issuances to allow for the, the leveraging of their balance sheets. So I think what you're pointing to, Matt, is, is, is a real problem. And that is someone has got to come in and provide the funding to allow this housing market to continue to grow and I am having difficulty seeing who it is if it's not going to be Fannie and Freddie, because it was Fannie and Freddie in the first quarter. It was the Federal Reserve in the two years prior to that. So who is it going to be going forward? And that's unclear. It's just totally unclear. Unless mortgage rates go to 7 8%, then I think the banks will step up and start buying them. Dick, earlier you mentioned the budget deficit, which will come in at around $1 trillion this year. Uh, just looking at some numbers, over each of the past two years, the government ended up roughly with $3 trillion in the red. So numbers came out of the Congressional Budget Office, and it said the surge comes chiefly from individual income taxes, which account for 10.6% of gross domestic product this year i mean just that this is a windfall as such but do you see that continuing into next year or is this a one-off driven by inflation and people back at work any thoughts well both both the united states treasury and the congressional budget office project out you know what the budget of the of the united states is going to be over the period from 2021 to 2031 and last week the congressional budget office said that they were increasing what the size of the deficits would be. But when you take a look at the numbers, and I'm using now the Treasury Department numbers, which I've been using forever, um, basically the Treasury Department numbers are very clear that they're claiming in fiscal 2022, which ends now in about six months, uh, you know, the deficit will be under 900 billion. In 2023, it'll be under a trillion. And in 2024, it'll be a trillion. So let's assume they're wrong by 20%, not, not a small amount, by 20%. If they're wrong by 20%, we're still talking about one to 1.2 trillion in deficits. And we haven't had a deficit that low in either 2020 or 2021. So I, I, I think that uh, we could have logically argued that the base of the inflation, again, using the falling domino theory that I use, came from 
the actions of the Congress and the stimulus packages that they put through. But there aren't any coming. And, and, and people are making more money. The minimum wage is up to who knows what it is. I mean, I keep referring to, to Bank of America. You know, they're $22 as their minimum wage. Uh, but I can talk about the pizza shop down the street where they got to pay 15 bucks now for a cook and they were paying nine bucks. So, so, so the net effect is we're in a situation where tax receipts are going to continue to be high and they're going to continue to grow. And if that's going to happen, then we're not going to run huge deficits. But at the same time, if foreigners are freaking out because basically the dollar keeps going up in value and they've got to move funds into the dollar, then they move funds into the dollar by buying treasuries. And I mean, they can buy the currency directly if they choose, but generally speaking, they buy treasuries. So they buy treasuries. So now at a point in time when inflation is increasing tax receipts, the deficit is coming down. We're seeing an inflow of more money to buy the deficit. So we're in a situation where I don't believe that the deficit is going to drive inflation for at least another two to three years. You're listening to Audien Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Altstein of Audien Capital Group. Dick is the chief financial strategist at Audien and Matt is Audien co-founder and managing partner, and I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Dick, you've been looking at the war in Ukraine and Russia, uh, and you have some thoughts and analysis of it against the backdrop of the geopolitical economic picture we see here. How does it all play out? How does it impact the markets and investments? And how do you see this all turning out in the long term? Okay, well, the first thing is that I think we're being fed a lot of misinformation uh, by the American press, because of a desire on the part of everyone, myself definitely included, to see Russia get beaten and get beaten bad. So, you know, we're getting all of this data, which is arguing that, you know, Russia, you know, basically, um, you know, is losing its battle. It's its army is, uh, you know, in disarray. The people in the army are not being compensated properly. No, no uh, command, you know, data is coming down to the ranks the way it should. And, and we're constantly getting overloaded with that information. And, you know, that Russia got kicked out of Kiev, uh, that Russia is doing badly. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not true uh, in the sense that if you take a look at the map of Ukraine prior to the invasion in February, whatever it was, 24th, 25th, you know, what you can see is Russia had Crimea and there were little pieces uh, in Donetsk and, and Luhansk that Russia controlled. If you take a look at the map of Ukraine now, the way it's published in the paper, you can see that Russia has clearly established the corridor that it wanted from, you know, Russia directly to the Crimea. And you can see that we're now talking about 20% of Ukraine's territory under Russia's control because of major advances that they've made in Donetsk and, and Luhansk. Anyway, I've now read the life of Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Stalin, uh, and, and I've read, you know, a Russian history book, and I'm starting on a Ukrainian history book. And I got to tell you that this guy Putin is exactly the same as Ivan the Ter Ivan the Fourth, uh, Peter the Great, Stalin. There is no difference between this guy and what each what I've read in each one of these biographies. So why am I saying that? Because I'm saying that the whole approach of each one of these guys in running the country was to keep the, the, the Russian people under control, to have them, you know, controlled by the, the Russian, what I'm going to call KGB, even though it didn't exist back in, uh, back, uh, you know, in, they called them Aparichi, Aparichi or what have you, back in- Aparichis, I think. Yeah, when, yeah, when, when uh, Ivan the Terrible was, was running the country. The, the, the um, the torture, the the jailing, the false trials. They actually had false trials back in those days. All of it's the same. And through it all, the Russian people always 
stayed 100% behind their leaders, and they stayed 100% behind anything that those leaders wanted them to do. And what did the leaders do? They threw them into wars. They didn't care how many people were killed on their side or the other side, as long as they achieved their goals. If you look at this guy, Ivan the Terrible, he was fighting to reclaim lands that Russia lost, right? When you get to Peter the Great, he was fighting to reclaim the things that were lost after, you know, Ivan the Terrible. When you take a look at Stalin, he was reclaiming, you know, places like Poland, which were all Ukraine, which are always owned by the Russia. When you look at Putin, same deal. All mm -hmm. right. So I think if, if these people want to write about Russia and Russia's position, they better start understanding history. And what, if they go, and what they're going to understand about history is, number one, Russia doesn't give up easily. Now, I know they left Afghanistan, but they don't give up easily. They don't care how many people they kill. They follow a policy as they did in Syria. And as they did back in the 1450s, they kill everybody. All right. So the net effect is all they want to do is win. They will throw everything up against winning. And they are winning in Ukraine at the present time. So what does that mean for all of the issues that you raised? Well, first thing it means is that basically we are in this Cold War. This Cold War is not going to end, you know, for a generation. And that means that we have to realize that we've got to rebuild the United States from being what I call a grasshopper nation to being an ant nation where we're producing the goods that we're consuming. And I think that that's going to happen. And I think that's going to be extraordinarily positive. I was reading in, in The Economist that China is following what Russia is doing very closely. And what the Chinese warplanes are doing right now is they're not just flying over Taiwan, but they're dropping metal tailings out of these planes. They're flying close to other uh, aircraft, notably Japanese. And neither side is likely to step back and walk away. I think we have to just point out that or at least I'm, I'm going to be a little bit critical. I think you're redefining the word winning. If Russia were winning, they wouldn't have retreated from Kiev. They wouldn't have retreated from their uh, uh, seeming objective of conquering the country in two days and being welcomed as liberators. I, th I think what's really happening is that they're not losing. And what you said, I think, is exactly right, which is the media in America, which seemingly is an instrument of the federal government, is trying to portray them as losers and losing when in fact they've conquered as you called it accurately 20 25 percent of the territory of ukraine and they're itching and scratching at the bit to to get more and seemingly they will as as this war goes on i think though that the 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 real goal of the media portraying them as losers and the west as winners is to keep up obviously the the, the spirit and the support for being on ukraine's side this war, and you mentioned Afghanistan, that you know the Soviets um, retreated in I think 1989 after a 10-year, you know, not winning type situation, which is similar to what I think America wants them to do this time. Uh, the the National Security Advisor and um, Brzezinski and Kissinger in in the late 70s to designed this plan to entice the Soviets to go into Afghanistan because they wanted the Soviets to have their own Vietnam, and I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to think that America wants Russia in Ukraine for the foreseeable future because then it becomes a war of attrition and over time Russia becomes less of a potent threat save for obviously you know supersonic and, and hypersonic and nuclear missiles to the west but they become less of a threat for a traditional kinetic war to NATO and I think that's the actual strategy so I think it actually does make perfect sense that we're getting fed all these stuff about how Russia's losing, which, you know, is almost fair if you compare it to what we were told their original goals were, which was conquering Kiev in two to three days. Um, but in terms of going back to the original borders, it's clear Ukraine is is slowly being eaten away. And, and the West is, I think their goal is to make sure that Ukraine doesn't fall. And the West wants to support the U Ukrainians to the last Ukrainian. But what we really don't want is it spreading to NATO. And I think that is where maybe the, the rhetoric is actually closer to the truth because the, the battle lines, it seems, on in late February were closer to NATO than they are today.
Matt, I just wanted to understand your point a little more clearly here. You, you're saying that strategy you believe in the US, maybe in the West, is to deplete the power <laughs> of the, the Russians, sort of a, a war of attrition in that sense? Well, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think the West wins by sending Russia back to their borders in, in 2022, because Russia then could, could go back, spend a couple of years, rebuild and come back and do it right this time, you know, right being in air quotes and actually winning this time. I think what America wants is Russia to spend all their blood, treasure and equipment losing or not gaining too much in Ukraine so that they never have the, the capacity to go further west. I just want to follow up at something here. It, it, it's a very interesting debate and, and it's kind of unnerving, as it were, because we know this is a deadly war. Uh, Frederick Hodges, he's a former US, uh, top US Army commander in Europe. He was quoted recently as saying, war is a test of will and the Ukrainians have superior will. I see the Ukrainians' logistical situation getting better each week, while the Russian situation will slowly degrade. They have no allies or friends. I mean, be that as it may, we this, being on the side of the Ukrainians is probably the right place to be. We've seen examples of that through many wars, First World War, Second World War. Okay, uh, Adolf Hitler did his invasions and so on, and it was a bloodbath for so long, but those with the superior will and have the on the right side of this war have emerged victorious oftentimes. And uh, th that could play out here in the long term. I think that guy who wrote that piece doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, number one. To state that Russia has no friends is, is simply stupid. It's not even ridiculous. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because North Korea, China are friends of Russia. Iran is a friend of Russia. Uh, you know, India is a friend of Russia. Brazil. Russia has plenty of, yeah, 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 Brazil. You know, I mean, basically, Russia has plenty of friends and they are, they are supporting Russia and they are buying product from Russia to support the Russian economy. The ruble is not declining in value anymore. It actually has come up so rapidly from its uh, low point that it's the fastest growing currency in the world at the present time in terms of value. Russia's economy is not suffering at the present time, which is what we expect to see. Russia has a lot of friends. Why would anybody write something saying that Russia has no friends? And then in terms of will, you know, again, you know, everybody says the, the Soviet press is dishonest. It only writes what Putin wants. But, you know, there is nothing coming out of the American press showing that there's any giving of will on the part of the Amer of the Russian people to give up the uh, to give up Ukraine. In, in this history book that I read, you know, uh, of Russia, uh, in the first 20 pages, there's a map of what Russia was when it was first created by this guy Rurik coming out of Sweden, right? It was headquartered in Kyiv. That's where Russia started. It started in Kyiv. Kyiv is the capital of, the, of Ukraine. Yeah, so, so the net effect is there's plenty of will on the other side. There's attempting to have will, you know, in, I, I apologize, but in Syria, there was plenty of will on the other side, but they got their butts kicked. Russia won. I'd like to if we, can, if we can believe the polling in in Russia, Putin's popularity has soared. I mean, it's 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 quite extraordinary in my mind. But I, I'm looking and having no friends and allies. Good point, Dick. I, I take that. Um, but it's the right kind of friends and allies. We just hope we're on the right side back in the Ukrainians as we should. There's there no such you know, thing as a right side and a wrong side. There's no right side and wrong side. Ivan the Terrible was not the right side. Peter the Great was not the right side, all right? Stalin was not the right side, yet they all won. They all won. Just to clarify that, Dick, so Putin invading Ukraine, that wasn't either the right side or the wrong side? I don't care whether, whether it's the right or the wrong oh, it side. It doesn't sound like the right it's, side to me. But there is no right side. You're not in Russian. If you were but Russian, you would say it's the right side. You're an American. I'm an American. I think, I hope they get destroyed. Right. I want them to get destroyed. I want their economy to fall apart. I want there to be an uprising which Putin and his boyars 
That's what they used to be called. And, and all his boyers are thrown out of office. I want that to happen. But for, for me to say, this is the right side because it's what I want, and this is not the right side because it's what the Russians want, I think is, is throwing a morality into the thing which doesn't belong there. It's who's the most powerful, who's the smartest, and that's the side will win. I, I think you should point out, if you want to know who's winning, and I think this supports Dick's view a lot, is Joe Biden ran to become president on the basis that we are going to isolate and kind of strong arm Saudi Arabia. He called them a pariah state and the MBS has no business running a country. And because he's been kind of making you know, friendly gestures towards Putin, Biden has now reversed course, is going to fly to Saudi Arabia to kiss the ring of MBS because the war is so going so well for us. I mean, come on. He wouldn't be getting on a plane to Saudi Arabia if we were winning in Ukraine, in my opinion. Well, also, Venezuela, the, boy, the, the boycott on, on Venezuelan oil has been lifted for oil sent to Europe. All right. In other words, you know, that's how we're winning. Yes. I mean, Venezuela, with the great, greatest pariah state in the Western Hemisphere, you know, that we hate, that we want, we think is, you know, run by a dictator, which is supported by China and Russia. We blockaded that nation. They couldn't send any oil out. Now Biden says you can send it to Europe. What is, you know, you don't do that if you're winning. That's how much we're winning is, yeah. is we're, we're associated with pariah states and kissing the rings of pariahs in order to, to support our... Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, the right side? I don't think so. Well, we, let's hope this <laughs> ends in some kind of a peaceful, um, long-term picture. I, I mean, if they succeed in the Ukraine, Dick, if Russia, we hope not. That's a terrible picture for the global economy right it, how does that how, how does that change things if they succeed in ukraine you can bet within six months estonia latvia and lithuania all of which were russian territories also going back hundreds of years are gone mm. poland is gone mm. that's why you can't allow them to succeed but i can't tell you that you know because we're righteous and they're evil they won't succeed I can't tell you that the righteous one in Syria, when they bombed out the, the, the whole, you know, the, the whole Aleppo and places of that nature, the way they bombed out Kiev, you know, it's not the right side. It's who's got the most money, who's got the most power, who's got the most will. And I don't say at this moment that. Well, yeah. I guess it depends on our definition of what's right and wrong. I mean, I don't think anybody would agree with, in a right mind that uh, Putin should have invaded the Ukraine. We're talking about the right side in that context. But if you look at what the United States has put in, like, what, six billion in security assistance to Ukraine since the invasion of February 24th, what, what's your take on that? Well, my, 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 my fear is that the Russians are killing so many Ukrainians whether it's the Ukrainian estimate of 100 people a day or the Russian estimate or 1,000 people a day, you know, they're decimating the Ukraine armed forces. And, and Ukraine has got to find more people, you know, because they, the, the Russians have more people than they do, but they've got to find more people to put in that army because they're being chewed up. Yeah. You, know, you know, plus, you know, again, going back to the, the, the four people that I whose lives I've read, you know, they they knew that what you had to do when you conquered an area is drain the people and take them out of there. And the Russians are taking tens of thousands, if the press is right, is taking tens of thousands of people out of Ukraine, out of the conquered areas, and spreading them who knows where in Siberia, right? So so the fact of the matter is they're doing what their predecessors did. And again, it is not from a moralistic standpoint, it is not right. It is wrong. Thank you. As it doesn't have anything to do with the war, though. <laughs> Go back to something you raised at several previous episodes, and it fits into all of this military industrial complex and the spending on military. You see that just this huge buildup, just that example of the assistance from the US and probably um, other European allies. Pretty extraordinary if you compare it with 10 years ago what we were spending on military arsenal. Yeah, well, that's what I'm talking about. We, we, we can't be a grasshopper nation anymore. 
we've got to be an ant nation. And, and what we're seeing happen in the military is the first evidences of it. Although, you know, we'll, we'll get in three weeks, since I'm, 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 you know, my nature is of a bank analyst, we'll get the banks reporting their earnings. But in the conference calls that they're making, they're now talking about what we discussed a year, a half a year ago. They're now speaking about the fact that uh, they're getting requests for money uh, and drawdowns of credit lines to build manufacturing capability. And of course, it starts. It starts with, you know, the military items, you know, Raytheon, I, I don't know the companies, I'm, I'm not a, a defense analyst, but there's there's a whole bunch of companies which are being mentioned to me that, uh, you know, are already benefiting by what's going on here. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group, and I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Well, Dick and Matt, we're near the end of our time, but we have um, some room here for Dick's analysis on a bunch of regional stocks. You cover the banking sector, uh, Dick, and can you just share some of this with us? Yeah, no, I think that your comment a moment ago uh, is is the correct one. You know, when you were talking about the build-up defense expenditure in the United States, what what we're seeing is these banks in the Midwest, you know, that provide funding for these companies that make things, right? We're seeing that they're getting a big increase in the demand for their loans. And the increase in the demand for their loans is occurring at a time, and the loans are being, the demand is not coming from consumer products, it's coming from the commercial sector, because these banks specialize in loans to businesses, not loans to people. Loans to people that's specialized by the big banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan, et cetera, that have national franchises. So these companies are, if you will, the canary in the coal mine about whether this is actually happening. And they are seeing it happening in two fashions. Number one, their loan volume is going up. And number two, the lines of credit, which they've established, are now being taken down. They had not been taken down for two years. In fact, they've gotten, I, I don't know if it's at historic lows, but the demand for, the, for loans for, for, for using these lines of credit were not there. All right. So what, what, what is was evident, I think, in these banks is, number one, they're, they're selling more of their product, loans being their product. Number two, interest rates have gone up substantially. That's the margin on the product that they're selling. Number three, they have not run into any problems with loan losses. Loan losses are well below what it, what would be considered normal. One and one and a half percent, in my view, is normal. They're well below that. Number four, you know, we're in a situation where um, the stocks are selling at multiples, which are getting close to where they were in not just 2020 or 2000. Uh, eight or 2010, but they're coming down to selling at five and six times earnings. The yields on these stocks are now approaching 4%. Well, you can't get 4% on, on a 10-year on a treasury. So, so the net effect is we, we're seeing these stocks getting really pounded down you know, dramatically at a time when their book values are going to be rising, their dividends are rising, they're trying to buy back stock. They're going to see their core businesses growing up. And it's and, and we're going to see a lot of the results of that in three weeks. Because on the 15th of July, we start to come out with these earnings reports. I can see a rally occurring in, in, in this group simply because they've just gotten too cheap. What regions uh, are we talking about here, Dick? Can you give us some names? Yeah, yeah. In other words, uh, in Michigan, you got, uh, you know, um, Comerica. In um, Ohio, uh, you've got uh, Fifth Third and Key Corp and a company don't follow, Huntington Bank Corp. If you go down uh, to um, south to Alabama, you've got Regions Financial. If you come over to, you know, North Carolina, uh, you've got uh, Truist Financial. If you want a, a broad, broad brush of everything 
you know, west of the Mississippi, you've got U.S. Bancorp. There's a lot of banks which are sitting in the right place, some of which we're recommending, some of which we are not. But, you know, basically, there are a lot of banks that are sitting in the right place because these banks tend to be commercial lenders, not consumer lenders. They're not taking care of the grasshoppers. They're taking care of the ants. And they're finding that their business is, is moving ahead. And yet the prices of their stocks are going lower. And the yields on these stocks are somewhat higher than you're going to get in, in, in the, uh, the, the debt markets. And also, by the way, you know, we've been very, very negative on, you know, the, um, the big money center banks. But what's happening there is trading has actually picked up somewhat. Companies like Citigroup, I mean, this thing about the dollar, Citigroup is selling at a 50% discount to book value. And yet, you know, the dollar is rising and Citigroup's trading is going to be up 25% in the second quarter year over year because they're trading the dollar as the dollar is rising. So there are opportunities that, that at least I know about, and a lot more opportunities that I don't know about because I don't follow the ma manufacturing or defense companies. So that's trading in the currency markets that Citigroup are referring to. Yeah, Citigroup. Citigroup is is one of the largest traders of currencies in the world. It, it deals in 150 countries in terms of trading, uh, and it is uh, the mechanism that the uh, Fortune 500 used to handle a good portion of their trades and just an explosion. Wow. 25% year over year. Wow. Well, some good news there for the banks. Uh, we've run out of time, Dick and Matt, and we've had a fabulous, fantastic, far-reaching conversation. Some sparks flew there. That's good for a podcast. And we'll be back next week for episode 23. Take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.